Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Caroline. And I'm Kristen. And we'd like to welcome you to Weird Parental Psychology Week here on the podcast. Today we're talking about Mama's Boys. And Kristen and I learned in reading all of these sources, reading up on this topic, that, you know, there's, there is a social stigma against Mama's Boys. But it is so, it comes from like a really deeply ingrained place that goes way back and has some very questionable dark origins. Yeah, and not to jump too far ahead, but the next episode we're going to do in Weird Parental Psychology Week will be Daddy's Girls. And pay attention in this episode because there will be some similar psychoanalytic threads that run throughout both episodes. So when it comes to the cultural history of Mama's Boys, when we started getting uncut, and by we, I mean socially, began growing more mistrusting, perhaps, of this mother-son relationship, it seems to really ramp up in the post-World War II era with all of these uh, changing ideas about masculinity, the fear of men becoming feminized as they returned to the domestic front, and also the evolution of women's roles. Yeah, it's really interesting to to sort of watch the evolution of this concept as a negative thing, particularly, not, not as a positive, yay, mom is supporting her son. And it really stems from a lot of ideas about performing masculinity Right. Will this boy grow up to be sort of weak or too feminine if he loves his mom too much? There were also fears about if mom was too distant. So it's like there's no winning for mom. There were also a lot of fears about if a close relationship between a boy and his mother would make him grow up to be gay. A lot of uh, social fears that were circulating around this time that were behind this theory. And, of course, we have to mention Freud and the Oedipus complex, which, of course, is based on the Greek myth about Oedipus, who ends up killing his father to marry his mother, which is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And, oh, no, and... Then Freud was like, aha, <laughs> now I have figured out all of the, all of the things. So basically the Oedipus complex is this idea that boys in their early phases are, you know, gr- develop this intense love for their mothers, are threatened by their fathers. And if there is a sister in the house, he'll see that she doesn't have a penis. And then he will develop castration anxiety because he won't know why she doesn't have a penis and will assume that it must have been cut off at some point. So he's like, "Uh oh, all right, I better get my act together and stop falling in love with my mother (laughs) because my dad is really the man of the house. And then he grows up and I guess um, transfers his love on to someone else. That's that'll be three thousand dollars, ladies and gentlemen, for Kristen's uh, psychology class that she just gave you. And the thing is, we bring up Freud these days, it seems like as almost almost in like a cliched way. But Freud, Freudian psychology and psychoanalysis sort of had American culture in a chokehold in the mid-century. I mean, we were really basing a lot of how we were living our life and understanding the dynamics of uh, family <laughs> families in our households based on Freud. 
Yeah, so it's interesting how how ingrained this whole concept of mama's boys and mother-son relationships was in society. Because if you look back to 1934, Vanity Fair uh, ran an article talking about Hitler being a mama's boy. And granted, this was in 1934. This is way before the war, before the U.S. involvement in the war, and before Hitler had committed mass genocide. But... In the same breath that Vanity Fair talks about how Hitler weeps easily, they also talk about how he hated his father but loved his mother with a fanatic devotion, which is the same language you see a lot of psychologists and sociologists around this time starting to use regarding Mama's Boys. Well, and to drive home the point about how culturally ingrained, even in 34, this idea of the Oedipus complex was, just take this quote from that article, Undoubtedly, Hitler grew up with a very strong Oedipus complex. Almost everyone has this to some extent, but in Hitler, it was more than normally pronounced. So, right, the the writer was talking about how Hitler was chained, quote, chained by an immense bond to the woman who is the most important factor in his life and talking about how he was driven not only by his yearnings to fulfill the great historical mission that his mother basically gave him, uh, but subconsciously trying to prove to his then-deceased father his right to independence, success, and power. Oh, boy. So, Hitler, the ultimate mama's boy. Yikes. End of podcast. All the parents listening are terrified. Well, uh, yeah, but, I mean, I think it's it's interesting to talk about it from this perspective about how an American writer and an American publication was talking about this guy in these terms because I think it illustrates how from the get-go being a mama's boy was a negative. Yeah, and a little bit after this, we have the coining of the term momism, and uh, we learned about this in the book Mama's Boy, Momism and Homophobia in Post-War American Culture by Roel Vandenover, uh, written in 2012, and And it was in 1942 that this social commentator named Philip Wiley writes this book called Generation of Vipers, in which he coins the term momism in a chapter entitled Common Women. And Generation of Vipers turned out to be this surprisingly successful book and was reprinted a bunch of times and a lot of people were reading it. And this particular chapter on women and moms got a lot of attention because Wiley in it attacks mothers for instilling in their sons a supposed, quote, uncritical tendency toward mother worship. And he blamed technology giving women more free time in the home that uh, made essentially shifted their focus from, you know, taking all day to clean and cook and make sure that the house was ready for their husband when he came home to then uh, over dote on their children. Right. It's 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 his language is dripping with misogyny. Honestly, uh, he sort of is just blaming mothers for society's ills. And this is a snowball. This really snowballs over the next couple of years. But Wiley talks about how mom steals from the generation of women behind her that part of her boy's personality, which should have become the love of a female contemporary. Mom transmutes it into sentimentality for herself. And he even coming full circle, compares mom to Hitler. No. Like, seriously? 
Seriously, people, I bet no one knew we would be mentioning Hitler so much in this episode. (laughs) Hey, I didn't realize it either. I didn't either. But just the next year in 1943, psychiatrist David Levy publishes a study in which he catalogs all of the harmful effects of overprotective mothers, uh, you know, according to him. Basically, everything from poor eyesight from reading too much to disobedience and finickiness about food, basically placing any and all anxieties about our sons on the mother's shoulders. Yeah, because there isn't too much focus at the time on the mother-daughter relationship because, mm-hmm. I mean, you don't really need to raise strong daughters who will be independent and go out and fend for themselves in the 1940s. So it's all focused on the sons. And in addition to a lot of these texts being you know, dripping with misogyny, they're also dripping with homophobia. Oh, yeah. Because the undercurrent of most of this fear of momism is that these overprotective, you know, overly affectionate mothers are raising these boys who will turn out to be gay because they associate, you know, men being gay with femininity and what two more terrible things could there possibly be in American society in 1943. I know. God, I just wish all of America were nothing but strong brawny men. Uh, I'm sure that would work out really well. Well, Caroline, we have so much more fascinating research findings to share when we come right back from a quick break. But so in 1946, psychiatrist Edward Strecker blamed not only mothers, it's not just mom's fault, it's also mom's substitutes fault. So he said that there were all of these people and institutions in American society that were to blame for keeping men, quote, immature. Things like weak fathers, grandmothers, mothers-in-law, governesses, nurses and school teachers, basically other women. Yeah. And a, and a few weak dads, but really just other other women. Really, women are terrible. And so then the structures, I found the structures that he blamed really interesting. Everything from religious fanaticism to political isolationism. The army itself, Nazi Germany, Kristen, and Imperial Japan, and on and on and on. All of these things that are keeping men from realizing their true masculinity. And then in 1947, the following year, sociologist Ferdinand Lundberg and psychologist Mariana Farnham ramp things up even more. And they argue that women were, quote, one of modern civilization's major unsolved problems. Which just makes me think about that song from The Sound of Music. How how do you solve a problem? Like all of women. All of women. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But yeah, they compared. They put women on par like women, all of women on par with social ills like crime, poverty and epidemic diseases. And they took a nice look back and said that, hey, guys, things are really started going downhill around the Industrial Revolution. Technology coming up again. Technology. And they point to good old Mary Wollstonecraft. Because they said that it was out of her, quote, illness arose the ideology of feminism. Yes, she, the author of Vindication of the Rights of Women. And so when they fast forward to the 1940s, when they were writing, they said the manifestation of all of these womanly induced ills is mom. It's just mom, just a horrible, 
horrible mom whose vacuum cleaner has really cut down too much on cleaning time. Exactly, because if mom were focused more on cleaning and less on, you know, being a dissatisfied housewife, she wouldn't make her child pay the price for her dissatisfaction, talking about how she's neurotic, she has penis envy, and it's all the feminist movement's fault. And so with all of this... Commentary and academic mumbo jumbo seeping into our cultural consciousness. You have these theories developing that are taking the, the perils of mama's boys even farther from the internal effects of, you know, hampering their social and psychosexual development to then blaming mothers too close relationships to their sons for things such as asthma, autism, and schizophrenia. But, but worst of all, of course, in, in their eyes at this time, is being gay. Right. And sort of the, the manifestation of all of these social anxieties about gay people would be people like sex police people like Joseph McCarthy, who in the same breath that he denounced communism was also denouncing gay people in the United States at the time. But these anxieties became so pronounced that they started coming through in our literature and movies and other pop culture at the time. And that author Vandenover, who Kristen mentioned earlier, looked at four texts in his book, and they all had a dominant mother figure with what he called a queer son figure. They included Suddenly Last Summer, The Grotto, Portnoy's Complaint, and Psycho. And he talked about how all four featured the son's sexual transgressions, everything from homosexuality to pedophilia and cannibalism. And then he looks at Psycho in particular, which came out in 1960, and points out that Norman Bates, who is the cross-dressing, mom-obsessed, voyeuristic murderer character... Spoiler uh, alert. Spoiler. <laughs> and another author, Alexander Doty, in his book Flaming Classics, Queering the Film Canon talks about how Norman, the character of Norman Bates, is understood to be perverse somehow. Quote, he is the quintessential mama's boy gone horribly bad, but this incestuous mama's boy coding is also the basis for reading Norman as homosexual. And so there was a lot of literature around this time, a lot of like this pop culture stuff, as in Psycho, where people were equating mama's boy being a mama's boy, not only with homosexuality and their fears about that, but just like all of that being taken to a really evil level. Well, and then there's also the real life application of these assumptions about how you know, the potentially devious effects of this mother son relationship in the case of the Boston Strangler in the early 1960s. The police were essentially basing their idea of the Boston Strangler as this you know murderer who had to be the product of an overbearing mother based on I mean, sure, there were pop cultural cues going on, but what we've just talked about this legacy, you know, for decades now of all of these horrific theories about the mama's boy. And it turns out when he was caught, his mother didn't fit the profile at all. No, but this alleged terribleness that she apparently had and her son's assumed obsession with her had really already infiltrated society's imagination. Because keep in mind, they made a movie based off of the Boston Strangler's like psychiatric case file before he was even caught. So the mama's boy, guilty before proven innocent. Right. Is that the right way to say it? Sure. So thanks to uh, Freud, 
and our deeply ingrained societal insecurities around this time, being a mama's boy, even today, is super loaded. And, you know, Kristen and I wanted to look into why. And as you might imagine, a lot of it has to do with gender norms and expectations. And this is something that Alana Nash talks about briefly uh, in her book, American Sweethearts, Teenage Girls in the 20th Century Popular Culture, which focuses obviously more on girls and the idea of the daddy's girl, which we're going to talk about in our next podcast. But Nash writes, because of the cultural insistence upon heterosexuality and because heterosexual masculinity is popularly imagined to forge itself through separation from feminine influence, a boy overly identified with his mama transgresses against gender expectations. Yeah, and she writes about how like being a daddy's girl is more socially acceptable, even if we do have all of these societal assumptions tied up in what a daddy's girl means. It's still more socially acceptable because she says, quote, it's a diminished female paired with a dominant male. That is socially normal, quote unquote, and it's not pathologized the same way that a mama's boy is. Well, and there's a whole thing, too, when it comes to daddy's girls, there's this idea that and it makes total sense that it should be, you know, it's good for a girl to have a solid relationship with her father because he is, you know, the primary model of what a especially speaking in heteronormative terms, the primary model of what a loving, caring future mate should look like. Mm hmm. You don't see the same kind of thing talked about, though, in terms of mother modeling the ideal mate for her son. No, that's when we get into arrested development territory of mother boy dances. It's horrifying. And maybe, though, that's because of the fact that culturally women as they age and become mothers tend to lose their sexual currency, whereas obviously, you know, as men grow older, they can continue to procreate and still you know, uh, are are more sexually alluring um, in their older years. There's so much wrapped up in it. And so it seems like overall, ma- mama's boys are more stigmatized and have been historically stigmatized more than the idea of a daddy's girl, which is really interesting to compare the two. Yeah, but a lot of research, well, research and also just uh, conversations have been happening in the past couple of years about how, It's really not as bad as everybody's panicking about. Yeah, thankfully we are at this point in the 21st century, maybe finally moving on just a little bit from Freud, just a tiny bit. And we will talk more about that and more of the positive sides of this whole mama's boy thing, because it is not all bad as sons and mothers of sons listening can attest when we come right back from a quick break. So one woman who got really, really fed up with this whole mama's boy stigma is New York Times contributor turned author Kate Lombardi, who in 2012 wrote the book on it, The Mama's Boy Myth, Why Keeping Our Sons Close Makes Them Stronger. And it got a lot of people talking. I mean, she she had a ton of press for this book, which I think says a lot, right? Because she was one of the first major people to come out and loudly proclaim that you guys are overreacting. 
There is nothing wrong with a mother having a close relationship with her son. In fact, it's incredibly healthy for him. And it also seemed like in all the articles we read about her or by her, everything was prefaced with Kate Lombardi has a son. They're very close. But it's not like creepy close. It's just, you know, like they're close and it's healthy. I mean, even the fact that that who was it uh, writing over in the parenting blog over the New York Times was talking about how. It's unfortunate that, that that distinction even has to be made. And that gets to the heart of why she even wrote this book, calling it a myth in the first place. Right. And writing for Time magazine, uh, Lombardi cited a 2010 study from the journal Child Development, where they found that baby boys who don't form strong attachments to their mom end up becoming more aggressive and destructive children as they get older. She also cites sociologist Michael Kimmel, who writes about how when young sons are encouraged to separate prematurely from their moms, they end up becoming anxious and carry a fear of intimacy and betrayal into their adult years. But, you know, you don't hear about that talked about the same way that you hear a woman talked about who has, quote unquote, daddy issues if she is insecure, anxious or has a fear of intimacy. Well, that might have to do with the fact that these ideals of hypermasculinity are still very strong within our society. Um, this was something that Carlos Santos, a uh, professor at Arizona State University, investigated for a study he presented to the American Psychological Association in 2010. And he found that as boys enter adolescence, they tend to embrace these hyper-masculine stereotypes more, uh, being influenced mostly by culture, not by this hard wiring, as we often hear about. Right. And so he says that the boys that he looked at who remained close to their moms didn't end up acting as tough and were more emotionally available. And then those same boys went on to have better rates of mental health through middle school. And the mom in this situation is is key because closeness to dads didn't have the same effect on the boys. And he posited that it could be that dads are reinforcing intentionally or not reinforcing gender roles and that expected typical masculine behavior. And so analyzing his study, Time magazine is talking about his findings and talks about how these like, quote unquote, typical masculine traits lead Men to seek less medical help when it's needed, for instance. But those boys who ended up having closer emotional connections and relationships with their mom, those relationships provided a sense of safety and emotional security that ended up reducing stress and fostering good health. And that makes sense, because if you're more emotionally literate, basically, if you're more willing to talk about how you feel, that greatly reduces stress, forming those connections with people. Well, and there is, though, one thing in... A lot of the stuff we read, particularly with uh, Mama's Boys, that maybe research just hasn't caught up to or what. But the fact that there are a growing number of families in the United States and elsewhere where there are no moms in the house because there are two dads. So I think that. The one caution with this kind of research, particularly when it's like, well, you know, boys can only get this particular kind of love and care and attention from 
a mother figure, they can only learn this sort of, you know, derive this kind of emotional security from that softer feminine force. I think that uh, take that with a grain of salt, because I think studies have shown that two fathers can also provide that kind of openness and caring and kindness as well. Sure. Well, this definitely this research definitely focuses purely on relationships where it's a woman and a man and the woman is providing that softer feminine mothering nurturing influence and the dad in the, in the research is definitely more stereotypical male yeah he's mowing the lawn right he's <laughs> always mowing always. the lawn why won't he hug me God. well when we're talking about the nature versus nurture with the whole mama's boy thing when it comes to nurture we have to look at Italian culture because this is something that comes up a lot in Mama's Boy literature because there is even a word in Italian for the close bond between mothers and sons, and it is mamismo. That's right. Mamismo. And those men who are in those super bonded relationships with mom are called the mamoni, which is Italian for mama's A mamoni. Mamoni, spaghetti and meatballs. So in 2013, I love that there are stats on this. In 2013, 52% of Italian men between the ages of 25 and 34 were still living at home compared to 25% of American men in that age group. And... Researchers, moms, sons, everybody, they cite the economy, that they're saving money or they're going to school or things like that. But back in 2007, the country's economic minister was like, I've had it. I've had it with this thing where you live with your mom. And he said it was time to, quote, get those big babies out of the house. Whoa, yikes. Yikes. Well, and I also found that I'm not sure what year it was, but it was in the past couple of years that members of the Catholic Church delivered similar messages (laughs) saying, "Okay, Mamoni, your mom will be there. You maybe need to get a little more independent and probably having to say the same thing as well to the moms because the moms feed it as well, both literally and figuratively. Ah, Oh, I would love an Italian mom to cook for me. But Italian psychologist Giuliana Proietti uh, looked at why Italian mamas might be fostering this whole relationship, this whole living with momness. And she found that the concept of mamismo has its roots in the traditional role of the Italian and then way back Latin woman who often felt unfulfilled before career and divorce were options. So it's like she's, you know, filling some void with her son. Yeah. I mean, that kind of that kind of makes sense. It makes sense, I guess. But the interesting thing about mamismo is that it seems to be a trait that is still considered endearing within the culture. Whereas if we jump back to the 1940s in the U.S., when you do have so many moms who were stuck at home and were perhaps, you know, you know, pouring out their attention on their children because they had nothing else that they could really do, no other career options, a divorce frowned upon, etc. But in American culture, it spirals into this idea of momism. Right. I yeah, why I, that is. I wonder what the 1940s psychologists, I wonder if they would just tear their hair out if they looked at Italian men and their mothers. But Italian men, though, are also and now I'm just speaking in, in broad stereotypes. So warning. But it does seem like Italian men are also known to be more outwardly mm, hyper masculine, mm-hmm. you know, 
Mm. So there perhaps wasn't as much of that. That fear that you're becoming gentle or soft. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. That effeminate panic, the purple panic. Interesting. Of the 40s. But uh, I I know that I have been friends with and dated men who have had interesting relationships with their mothers. Yeah, this the point of this podcast was not to explain away the fact that there can be perhaps troublesome mother-son relationships that can negatively impact their relationships with other women, again, speaking heteronormatively. Although I'm sure that that also can influence relationships in in gay relationships as well. Yeah, like I, I dated one guy who was uh, like almost afraid of his mom. He was terrified about what she would think about a lot of stuff. And that was stressful for me, just purely for me, talking from a selfish perspective. Well, and there are also instances when some guys are... So close to their moms, not in the sense of having to call them every day, but just not being able to make many decisions on their own without her first inserting herself and her opinion that that could be problematic. So not surprisingly, there are plenty of relationship experts out there with lots of advice to give about how to navigate those uh, those kinds of situations in which you're dating someone who has a parental relationship that sort of becomes a third party in your relationship. Yeah. And a lot of these columns say, hey, you know, don't be don't be put off if he has a relationship with his mom. I mean, that's a good thing. Yes. That says good things. If a, if a man can relate to a woman in a normal, healthy way, that's good. However, if. He is, like Kristen said, like, you know, seeking her approval for everything, her input on everything. If he, you know, at 35 still goes home every week to do laundry and get a home cooked meal. Oh, that might be nice, though. Every week? It can be a lot. Case by case basis. Case, case by, by case. case uh, there, some of the advice does say, like, take into account his age, you know, if he's 21 versus if he's 40. So just, you know, things to keep in mind. Kristen uh, apparently really, really wants men to uh, go go eat dinner at their mom's house all the time. No, I'm just saying that that can also be, you know, if, if when parents are getting older, I have I know people who see their moms every weekend. Like that's the thing that they yeah. do. I don't, and it's not, and they're perfectly well adjusted people. It is case by case. It's case by case. If it's problematic and if it is something that cannot, uh, that can never be canceled, for instance, you know, if you're dating a guy and, you, you know, you want to go to some kind of special event or have a special day together and it's on a day that he typically goes to see his mom and there's like no way he can ever, ever, ever cancel that, then okay, then th- that might be problematic. There you go. Perfect example. Well, so I'm interested to hear from people. People who've had experiences with mama's boys, or maybe you think you're one. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, and I will say from, at least from my anecdotal dating experience, much better to have a guy who has a healthy and close relationship with his mom than to date a guy who hates his mom. Oh, because yeah. if he hates his mom, he's, he <laughs> might not, it can be challenging. It can be challenging. Parents, just in general, are challenging. Yet again, this podcast triggers my fears about having children. <laughs> so keep it coming, people. <laughs> Let us know your thoughts on Mama's Boys. And yes, if you are one and if you have been with one or are currently with one, tell us all of your experiences, your tips for navigating it. 
All of your thoughts, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. You can also tweet us at momstuffpodcast or message us on Facebook. And we've got a couple of messages to share with you right now. Well, I have a letter here from Michaela about our middle child episode. She says, I have the pleasant double whammy of middle child syndrome by not only being a middle, but being a twin in the middle. I have an older, younger, and twin sister. It doesn't get much more middly than that. So not only did I get my older sister's hand-me-down, run-down car when I got my driver's license, but I had to share it with my twin. The youngest, of course, got a shiny new one when her turn came around. See that resentment still shining through nearly a decade later? I think the most interesting thing about sharing middledom is that my twin and I have each veered in opposite directions. Whereas I tend more toward the oldest child characteristics of being motherly and responsible, my twin tends toward the youngest placement with the characteristics of being sociable and laid back. We're both definitely middle children, and my other sisters definitely fit their placement as well. I've always been the type to buy into the birth order dynamics. My family is a prime example. So thanks, Michaela. And I've got a letter here from Kelly, which got me so excited when I saw it in the Stuff Mom Never Told You inbox because she was responding to our episode a while back, Antarctic Women, in which we asked if any you know listeners had been to Antarctica or working there, and she has been. So, Kelly writes, I'm playing catch up on the podcast and just got to the one about the history of women in Antarctica. I was particularly excited to hear this since I worked in both the Arctic and Antarctic over the course of my MS and PhD. I've been to Antarctica four times, twice to Palmer Station on the South America Peninsular side and twice to McMurdo Station in the Australian New Zealand sector. Antarctica will always hold a place in my heart as well as it's where I met my husband. We were introduced by David Attenborough, the voice of Frozen Planet and Planet Earth, at the BBC's rap party for Frozen Planet. About a week after we started dating, insofar as you can date on ice, he found out he would be wintering over. He was on ice for six more months, 14 months total for him, before we finally got to see each other again. We've been married for a little over a year now, and it's always an adventure. I switched up poles for my dissertation research. I'm now studying preferential chemical weathering in front of the Greenland ice sheet. I've been to various parts of Western Greenland for the last three summers, and I found my fieldwork in the Arctic to be a lot more logistically challenging, though that's probably because I've been the one in charge of getting permits, making sure we all have our gear, finding places to stay, and just generally running the show. I have a lot of respect for the early explorers who had to figure out what they needed for months and have contingency plans when something inevitably went wrong. So thanks for bringing up the Antarctic. Well, thank you, Kelly. I love that letter. I love her story. I love that she's like, oh, yeah, you know, I met my husband on Antarctica, whatever. 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 No big deal. Just Antarctica. I mean, come on. An Antarctic love story. Have David Attenborough make make a documentary about that. Voice it over. Just an idea. So, if you have any letters to send to us, momstuff at howstuffworks.com is our email address. And for links to all of our social media, as well as all of our blogs, videos, and podcasts, which include links to sources that we cite throughout them, head on over to stuffmomnevertoldyou.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 